Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 24th, 2017, and my guest is Tyler Cowan, the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University. He is Chair and General Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason with Alex Tabaraki Blogs Daily at March Revolution and co-founder with Alex of the online educational platform Marginal Revolution University. He's also a regular columnist for Bloomberg View and host of the podcast Conversations with Tyler. Tyler, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ, for having me. Always a pleasure. It's uh, this is your tenth appearance. Uh, wow, your most that's great. I know it is. Uh, it's put you in the elite group of double digit uh, guests. Your most recent appearance was two months ago in May when we talked about your book, The Complacent Class. And today we're talking about a new book that you've written that's online. Uh, you can find it at medium.com. We're going to be putting a link up to it. The title is Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for a Society of Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals. What's your central claim? What's the – or claims? What are you trying to um, advance in this book? Since I was a graduate student, I've been interested in the normative foundations of economics and political judgments. And in this book, I try to argue we can actually solve the biggest uh, issues in judging you know, what makes a political or economic order right. Why do we prefer one economic policy over another? So it's a very philosophical book. And unlike a lot of philosophy, which tends to lead to a kind of nihilism or extreme skepticism, uh, in this, I try to suggest we actually have all the answers. We just need to be bold, and we can go through what those answers are. But that's the overview of this fairly short book. It's uh, I've worked on it for about 20 years, spending maybe a month or two, a year on it, trying to improve it. And then I figured finally it was ready. Well, it's a really interesting book, and it does make a bold claim, uh, more than one bold claim, which the um, your summary captures one of those claims, which is – We've figured it out. So uh, that's a bit strong. That's a strong claim, not just a bold claim. Uh, what have we figured out? What is the – what do you think is the central uh, way we should be deciding the policy issues that divide us? Economists for a long time have focused on economic growth, but most philosophers typically have not. I argue that if you systematically introduce the idea – of sustainable economic growth into philosophy, welfare economics, social choice theory, that that allows you to clear up really a lot of different problems. And think of the fundamental problem in so much of philosophy as being what we call aggregation. If, you know, John wants to watch one TV show and Sally wants to watch another show and they only have one TV, well, how do we judge which is the better outcome? There's different attempts to solve that problem. Some people are egalitarians, other people want to maximize utility of the two. But I argue we should take a straightforward economic approach and basically ask, well, what would they trade to do? And then I aggregate this approach to the whole economy. And basically, if you have one economy with a rate of compound growth over time, higher than that of another economy, you know, over some number of decades, one of those situations will just very clearly be better than the other for almost everyone. So that's the starting point of the book. Uh, the chapters cover a lot more issues, but that's kind of my entry point into the, the stuff talked about by John Rawls, Robert Nozick, Derek Parfit, and other people. How would you say that conclusion differs from simply saying uh, we should pursue what's a, quote, efficient, which is a phrase I do not like. Uh, it has a very narrow meaning in economics. It basically means uh, that we that – we, well, I'm not even going to try to summarize it, but help help me out here. What's the difference between your approach and traditional economic welfare approaches? Efficiency typically is quite a static concept. Uh, one novelty in, in my argument is I claim we should use an intergenerational discount rate of zero. That is the distant future we should not discount at all. There's positive time preference within a life, but over the course of generations, no one is sitting around impatiently waiting to be born. 
And once you adopt that move, the further out future becomes very important for our deliberations. And then the gains from getting this higher compound rate of economic growth, they really do just overwhelm anything else in the calculation. And the typical more static or atemporal economic treatment of efficiency, it may be useful for some problems, but it doesn't give you this whole perspective across time about how to think about you know, social choices in general. I guess one way to think about it, now that I've gotten overstepping my brain there, uh, it's earlier here in California where I'm recording this, so obviously I'm behind. Uh, one could argue that efficiency is making sure that the pie is as large as possible right now. And what you're suggesting is we ought to make sure that the pie grows as fast as it can grow going that's forward. Right. Would you say that's a decent? That's a good way to put it, yes. So most people would say, I want to come back to the technical issue of discounting because I think I, I find your approach deeply appealing and and one piece of it deeply flawed, and I'll let you defend it, but let's just start with this idea that I think is not compelling to most people. Uh, it sounds very technocratic that we should just you know, let the economy grow as fast as possible. Eventually, everything will work out well. A lot of people would find that unappealing uh, for one reason being it, it's it, it's mainly focusing on on material well-being, and I, I know you have an answer to that, so I want you to, I want you to answer that. The other, of course, is that it, 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 it may leave a lot of people behind. People are very worried about that, rightfully so. So try to deal with those two. Let me first say I do adopt the qualification that uh, maximizing growth should be subject to respecting human rights, and some human rights are absolute. We shouldn't trample over those, even if it will somehow boost the growth rate. Uh, but on top of that, I think if you look at long enough time horizons, say even relatively poor people today are much better off than they were in less wealthy societies of the 18th, 19th, or early 20th century, that they have access to cheap food, partial access to antibiotics, a much cleaner and healthier environment, uh, safer water. And that even though some people are going to gain much more than others, if you take a longer-term time perspective, I don't think you quite get to a literal unanimity of all humans being better off. Say some people who love power or who want to see the impoverishment of others, they'll be worse off. But from a practical point of view, virtually all people are better off, say, in a society that has five or seven times the GDP of an alternative course for economic policy. So if I might, I just want to defend you a little more completely in your point about human rights. You also say that leisure counts and the environment counts. So Absolutely. Yeah, so and without the environment working, none of this will be sustainable. So the long-time perspective, it both puts a higher priority on the environment, but also a higher priority on economic growth. And it gives you some metric for trading those two things off against each other. So I find the argument um, extremely compelling – in many dimensions, and I just want to—I want to cast it in a different way, which is—I use this—I've uh, used this in a couple of my books. I, I, I really think it's the right way to think about it, which is, if you asked a person in 1900 who suffered through economic change, who suffered through, say, the transformation of agriculture, or the industrialization in the late half of in the second half of the 19th century, there was a lot of hardship that that imposed. Uh, at the same time, uh, the well-being of the children and grandchildren of those people was so extraordinarily, stunningly great compared to their lives that a lot of people – I think those people themselves would say this was a good deal. So I agree, that to me is the logic of what you're talking about is in taking a long-term perspective. But for me, part of that requires uh, a connection between the generations that's through love which I think is often ignored, and it is, is there. And I'm wondering whether people alive today who maybe are less likely to have children than people in the past, whether some of those arguments don't work quite as well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, keep in mind, this book is in a sense a companion to my trade release, The Complacent Class. And that's a book about how we're less willing to incur one-off costs for a much better future. So if you're just asking, you know, how are people behaving today? 
I think we have less of that willingness to sacrifice for the future, more a sense of entitlement. I'm not going to give up anything now, no matter what it may bring later on. So I think we're moving in the wrong direction. Uh, I think even people who don't have children or who maybe do not love their children should be able to see, you know, the, the morally forcing nature of we should choose the outcome that will both enable civilization to last for longer, which is really compelling when you think about what that means, and have a higher standard of living for virtually all human beings. Uh, I think that those are the strongest values we can possibly cite, especially when combined with this notion of inalienable human rights as a kind of binding side constraint on what we can do. Why is it important that people have a high standard of living? That sounds like a very um – I know you have a much richer conception of that idea, but most people, that sounds very um, like something an economist would say who doesn't understand much about the human experience. Keep in mind, this isn't just money we're talking about. It's leisure time, it's ability to maintain your health, your ability to control your time, uh, what people value and are willing to trade off against other goods. But people who have higher living standards, there's plenty of good evidence that they tend to be happier. Within their societies, they live longer lives, they suffer less pain, they recover better from trauma, they're better able to be charitable to the rest of the world or people less fortunate than they are. I think most of what we consider the virtues uh, co-moves with having a much higher level of social wealth. What about the argument that right now – I don't accept the argument, but many people do – that many people are left behind in our economy – they don't share in the growth. The rising tide isn't lifting all boats anymore. So your argument was great in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s doesn't hold today. Well, I think today we're doing a very bad job at maximizing the rate of economic growth. So if a person is complaining that right now we're not doing what I'm suggesting, uh, I'm fully on board with that. Do I think there are plenty of changes we can make to economic policy that would both boost growth and improve the lot of people who are less fortunate, say, starting with education or deregulating building or helping our society be less crony capitalist, more mobile, and so on. There's plenty we can do. We're not doing it. We're totally failing. We're the complacent class, and we need to get our act together. And this gets back to the two books being compliments to each other. But of course we're failing at that. I guess – so let's take some particular issues. Uh, and you know, Other people would pick different issues that they think – are holding the economy back. And I want you to use the framework of the book to try to deal with them. And underlying some of their, your, your claims, I would say, at least the way I read it, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a view that, that the left and the right could come together on many of these issues and not disagree as much as they appear to. So issues that I think about that we fight about left and right are things like immigration – Issues like minimum wage or labor market regulation, tax policy. Do you think there are choices that we're missing? There are opportunities, to choose a word, phrase of yours, low-hanging fruit in the growth sphere that we're, that we're missing that could make a big improvement and that, in theory, left and right could agree on? Sure. Just to take tax policy, American tax policy is one of the most complicated in the world. In some regards, we tax capital at too high a rate. It slows down innovation. You have American firms shifting operations or just accounting profits overseas for the sole purpose of evading tax. That can't really make sense. Uh, most economists, and I include Democrats in this designation, Republicans, Democrats, think we could have a much better tax code and it would boost our rate of growth. So we should do it. Okay, well, I think that is uh, – that's one I think there is some agreement on among – Economists, for you know, examples like lowering the corporate tax rate or changing the way we treat profits overseas, right. um, but the height of marginal rates. I, mean, I guess the thing that comes to my mind when I was reading your book is when I was being trained as an economist, there was this um, so-called equity and efficiency trade-off. It's kind of what your book's about, at least the way it was framed when I was younger, which is. That if we try to redistribute income on the grounds of fairness or political expediency, either one, that we're going to pay a price in either efficiency, the pie is going to be smaller than it would be, or more importantly in your case, the pie is not going to grow as fast. What evidence do you think we have 
that there is this uh, potentially much higher growth rate awaiting us if we had better uh, economic policy? Well, let me first just go back a second and say I do think some redistributions could boost the rate of economic growth a lot, and they have in the past. Public health programs would be an example, uh, giving poor people more resources so they have more opportunity and they have a better chance to become creators or maybe even later inventors. So I don't think it means no redistribution. I think it says we should you know, check redistribution by what kinds of redistribution will maximize the growth rate. I think in many particular individual areas in economics, there's good evidence that particular reforms would boost economic growth. There's work by Enrico Moretti, for instance, that by deregulating building, this would boost GDP and give people more opportunity. It would be pro-egalitarian as well. Uh, medical innovation, I think there's good evidence there that some policies have helped it, other policies have hurt it. Obviously, we should do more to help it. The tax code, I think there are some economic issues that don't fit into my book. So you mentioned the minimum wage. Whatever one thinks of that, and I tend to be skeptical of minimum wages, but I don't think there's anything in the framework of my book that clears up whether or not we should do it, because odds are it could well be neutral with respect to growth, even if there's this one-time reason not to put those people out of work. So I don't think the framework handles all economic issues, but those that are growth-related or growth-sensitive, yes. Let's talk about the mobility issue, and we'll start with inside the country. You referenced uh, Enrico Moretti's work on regulation of housing supply, and, and a lot of people are starting to wonder about this. What's your take on this? Do you think we, we've made I – mean, it, it appears it, – it seems to me, and I don't have strong evidence for it, but it seems to me we've made a catastrophic set of mistakes in urban housing policy that, for reasons that – you know, we could debate what the underlying cause is, but a lot of people would, would be more productive living in the larger American cities. And those cities have become extremely expensive. Yes. Uh, I find it interesting that we – I mean we have a lot of stories to tell about it, but the, the evidence is not so open and shut, or maybe you think it is. Talk about that. I wouldn't say it's open and shut, but here's the thing that happened that surprised many people, myself included. The extent to which ex clustering benefits, you know, having so many smart tech people together in San Francisco or so many people in the arts or creative industries together in New York or Manhattan, those lately have been a lot stronger than most people expected. I think there was a sense of well, maybe I don't favor these building restrictions, but, you know, there'll be overflow. Some people will move to Atlanta. They'll move to Tulsa, Oklahoma, or wherever. They won't be quite as productive, but, you know, we'll work around it. And how wrong that's turned out to have been. I think information technology in particular is remarkably clustered. It's a bit like movie project evaluation in Hollywood or finance in New York, London, and Hong Kong. So we're moving more toward clustering, and that's made – you know, a more or less constant policy be a lot more costly. And I think, uh, you know, there are studies like the Moretti articles, but also just intuitively you see productive people who want to move to San Francisco and they tell you, hey, I can't afford it. You then go to San Francisco, you see there's plenty of room there. I don't want to quite call that a proof, but what I would refer to as the anecdotal dimension, it very strongly supports the statistical work. Yeah, let's talk about that clustering for a minute. It's this digression, but it's one that, that intrigues me. We invoke that, um, that clustering argument that people are more productive around people like them. But, of course, you don't interact with most of them. You can't, almost by definition, uh, just the physical constraints of human life and time. So I happen to be in the Bay Area for the summer. I'm, in, I'm recording this on the Stanford campus, which, I, which sometimes feels like the center of the tech universe – and I meet a lot of really smart people here uh, who are working in startups or in the larger firms. And is it really important that they're near other really smart people? It's hard to understand for me. It, it, the place feels alive about these issues. It feels like a more dynamic place than, say, suburban Maryland where I live during the year. But what's the underlying reality that's that's driving that, that productivity that, that that we claim? I don't. I'm not sure I understand what it is. Keep in mind, in an indirect way, you do interact with all of them. So there's some kind of aggregation mechanism for information. 
So the best ideas get passed along, and you're in closer contact with those ideas. You understand them better in context. So maybe if in, over the course of a week you only speak to 10 people, but those 10 people have spoken to 10 people who in turn, you know, and so on down a chain, and what gets passed along are the best ideas relevant to, say, the Bay Area. It's like being in the think tank world in or near Washington, D.C. In the course of a week or month, how many other how many think tankers do I meet? Uh, probably, you know, it depends where I go. But even if I only meet a few, what I'm hearing are the best dribs and drabs that world is producing. And then on the hiring side, when you're going out to give people a job and set them to work doing something and your company might have to ramp up quickly, you know, in the tech world, you can't do that in Tallahassee. Actually, in the public policy world, you really can't do that in San Francisco very well. So, you know, I even live some of that firsthand as having a role at Mercatus Center and George Mason University doing hiring. And you see just how important that clustering is. If you're doing public policy work, you want to be near Washington, D.C. And you do learn from everyone here, even if you only meet with 10 of them. I don't think I've ever heard it romanticized that way and as dribs and drabs, but I, I think you meant you meant it in a positive way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was kind of teasing. Yeah. Um, let, let me think about it maybe a slightly different way, which ties into this point about mobility. If I, if a firm did start in Tallahassee um, and it didn't work out, which most of them, of course, don't, most startups don't make it, uh, you got to move from Tallahassee. You got to leave. You got to start over. I think one of the advantages of these clusters that we're talking about is that once you're there, and I'm talking now about the the worker, not the firm, and but of course it has an, the firm also has a has economies of scale in this. But for a worker, you know, if it doesn't work out at Google, there are other places I can work that that demand my skills, and I don't have to relocate to Minneapolis or Boston or Austin or New York or Washington or Chicago, and that's nice. Maybe especially for two earner couples, right? Correct, where you've got to find that second. Yeah, that's that's another that just yeah, that just reinforces the point. I just wonder. I, I feel like um, I feel like we've made everything just a little harder for people to relocate, both in terms of real estate policy, um, and maybe some of it's emotional. Maybe some of it's our a wealth effect that we we don't like to um, we don't like to start over when we're well when we're successful. I'm just trying to figure out why it's different. Why is it different now than than 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's hard to, to understand, right? It's easy to tell the story at a point in time. It's, hard to, it's a little harder to make the claim over time, it seems to me. But look at what's grown in our economy. It's been information technology, finance, and creative industries, among other areas. Those are all very clustering intensive. Something like cement production, you know, the cement producers are not all clustered in one part of Ohio, they're fairly spread out through the country because transporting cement is costly. So a lot, so much of our economic growth has come in clustering intensive areas. That's changed a lot. Uh, schooling has become more of a race. There's a lot more credentialism. So having your kid in the right school is more important. And that makes, say, Manhattan, San Francisco much more problematic. You've got to pay for private schooling for a lot of parents. That has changed and intensified. So I think there are some things we can point to that seem pretty clearly in line with the overall story. The world being globalized also. You want to reach global markets. Well, that's harder to do from Tallahassee. It's easier from New York or San Francisco, so the value of being there is now much higher. Why do you think credentialism's grown the way it has? That point, why is it so important? Why, why do parents suffer? <laughs> uh, and that slightly goes against your uh, point earlier about being willing to sacrifice for the future. Right? Parents relentlessly sacrifice uh, for their children to get them into the, the best private schools, the best universities. And I've always been somewhat of a skeptic on that for my children. Um, part of it's my educational past and part of it's just I feel like I've been in the kitchen and um, I, I know what the differences are between the most prestigious and the not as quite prestigious schools. And sure. it's a big premium that people pay for it. And I'm not, personally, it's not worth it for me. But what do you think, why has that gotten, quote, worse, or depending on how you view it, but why has it changed so much over the last 20 years? Some of it is the law. So there are more licenses for more professions than ever before. Some of it is just overall growth of the service sector. 
which tends to have more certification, even if it's of the non-legal sort. I think some of it is the greater complexity and indeed value of production. So a lot of entrepreneurs, they don't want to take so many chances, so they want the master's degree or the Ivy League or top 30 education, whatever it will be. And then some of it is this kind of signaling game where it inches up what credential you need and every generation it gets a bit worse. And it used to be an undergraduate degree, now it's a master's, maybe someday it will be a PhD. And that's just institutions getting out of whack and no one really pulling the plug and screaming and just saying no. I think all those put together. Isn't some of it just demographic that a very large cohort of the offspring of baby boomers is going through the university pipeline and there isn't enough? The costs of entry are very high. It's very difficult to start a first-rate university from scratch. Sure. And even if you could, take that many more people, yeah. Yeah, which is a puzzle, by the way. Um, yes, I agree. They, they've tried to, right? Implicitly, most of the great universities now are using MOOCs in other ways to extend their franchise and market share in a different dimension. But it's not – if you think of universities, as, as I do, as a, as a finishing school for um, certain types of people – that role is very difficult to get online, and uh, so the networking and the uh, socialization part of college is the what really are, people are really willing to pay for, and they they want a, a, a certain kind of product that's very difficult to create from scratch, almost by definition. The actual degree, the four year degree with your name on it, Harvard admissions have gone up a bit. Princeton, Yale, I mean, they're working on it a little, but it's nothing compared to what a normal market would bring, which is this huge increase in demand stemming from globalization and higher return to skills. And you would think like these schools would grow by a factor of 5, 10, 15, whatever. But of course, it's nothing like that. Maybe they boost admissions by 10% and then boast about it and say they're doing their best and they, you know, cut tuition for the poorest students. But it's basically uh, the same game, but with more people trying to rush through the entrance. Let's think about that just for a second. Why is it when I was at Chicago in graduate school in the 80s, um, it, Chicago, in the late 70s, Chicago had struggled through the late 60s and 70s with crime. And they thought about relocating, I think, to Arizona. Um, it's interesting that they didn't start a second campus, and then they, things got better, but, and they decided to stay. I think it was a threat to the city, basically. The, the city did, – the rumor, the rumor had it that the city – punished Hyde Park, where the university is, for not uh, supporting uh, Mayor Daley and other <laughs> Democratic candidates. So they would give them um, – they would support them in the election, but in the primary, they would always support the challenger. And so they'd give them lousy police service and lousy road snow clearing and garbage pickup. So the university created its own police department, um, which was pretty effective. Uh, but they but they threatened to move partially. Partially, I think, is just a threat. But why didn't they not move? But why don't they create? Why don't universities create uh, franchises? Extend the brand name. It's one thing to say, well, you know, Stanford wouldn't be Stanford if it was seventy thousand students. That's true. But why isn't there a Stanford East or a Harvard West or a Chicago South? Why don't universities or George Mason West? You know, George Mason. Is has a much better reputation, I think, than it's than it's sort of on paper quality because it's distinctive, and its economics department is a huge part of that. Why wouldn't George Mason try to exploit that reputational uh, advantage somewhere else outside of Virginia? I think it's hard to do. Keep in mind what makes George Mason say special is faculty of a particular kind. So you can't, you know, duplicate those faculty in a Star Trek like machine. You might hope to hire the equivalents, but to tell people, well, there's this new school, George Mason West, and it's starting with near zero faculty, and you're the first one to go there, and the colleagues you really want to interact with, they're 3,000 miles away. I'm not saying no one would take it, but it's not such a compelling offer if faculty is the scarce asset. Keep in mind, many schools do now have branches. Uh, Most commonly, you see this branching into Singapore. Uh, There's a bid into China. Some George Mason is a program in Korea. These are all new. We're not sure how they'll go. Uh, I think some of them actually will work. So the branching we're seeing is into this high-demand area of Asia. And I think there's also discrimination about admitting too many Asians into the main campus branch for a lot of schools. And this is a way around that. 
Yeah, but I think I think you're obviously the faculty is a, is a key part. I don't know how it's quite as irreplaceable or unduplicatable as you might want to think. But uh, you'd think there'd be some faculty who might want to live somewhere else uh, other than I Fairfax. Think Harvard- a Harvard slash California could work. I, I believe normatively Harvard should do it. I see zero signs that they're about to. It would mean a dilution of control, a lot of headaches, a lot of new legal issues, you know, some reputational risk. But you could increase the number of people getting into some version of Harvard by really quite a bit. And it would be a wonderful thing for the country and the world. So I'm going to suggest a, a simpler uh, explanation for this, which is uh, nobody has an incentive to do it. The uh, the faculty like where they are mostly. The, sure. There's no there's no owner. Um, the alums are something of a residual claimant. They have they're probably against this. They as you say they risk diluting their own That's reputational right. name. And they're they're significant. The alums. Yeah, very. Event. But there's no. It's just interesting how uh, it's always bewilders my my parents <laughs> that no one's really uh, there's no boss. In a uh, modern American university, the, the provost or the president only give the illusion of um, control. Uh, it's a very strange enterprise. And it's, um, it's interesting because it's something we ought to think about given how important it is in, in today, or at least how important it seems to be in our, um, in our lives and in both not just material lives as in economic growth that we're talking about, but in other ways as well. But these universities, they do take other value-maximizing actions, like trying to improve the sports team or, or treating their donors better or having the lawn look nice you know, on graduation day. So they're not incapable of responding to incentives. So I suspect this idea of control is quite central and risk and alums and the administration and the board just not wanting the headaches. Uh, and it's like when a lot of departments grow, the previous incumbents lose control. It's some similar issues. I th- I, but I really think it gets at the heart of what's dysfunctional about the nonprofit sector in general, which is – and there are many wonderful things about the nonprofit sector. I've sung its praises many times on the program, so uh, don't misunderstand me. But uh, the inevitable challenge of nonprofits, in my experience, is that they want to grow. They just want to be bigger. Yes. They will sacrifice their mission after a while. At first you – know, you know, the first – the founders of the organization and the early leaders are passionate about the mission, and they're very careful to make sure the mission's preserved. But after a while, the, the, the leaders care about just bigger, and they're willing to sacrifice the mission if bigger is the result. And that's just because um, there's no incentive for them to do something else, unfortunately, except for the passion of the people who care about that mission, either in the workers or the employees or the staff. Sometimes the donors, the donors do care. It's why they give generally. But if you think about them, you know the modern American university, the amount of money that they're sitting on in those endo- in the endowments is um, is shocking, really, sure. as a as a social phenomenon. When I because because I think most people have a romance about the university that's that it's created to help people and to allow people to educate themselves and teach them and and help transform the world. And if that were true, they would do something really different from what they're doing. I like this idea of the new university called Minerva. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have. But you spend four years abroad with peers in a setting. So you live in like Istanbul, Buenos Aires. You learn things from living there. And then you take shorter, intense classes online with your peer group and receive instruction at a distance. Uh, that, too, is new. It's too soon to judge. Uh, but I have some hope that that will be a success and lead to some alternative models and more experimentation. Yeah, it's just interesting as a parent of a 17-year-old and two other college-age students who are in traditional universities that um, the idea of a par- as a parent saying, oh, you got to try this. This looks good. The way you might say if, if a new car model came out, uh, that you might encourage them to try, or a, or a new, uh, I don't know, style of clothing. Uh, the amount that's at stake uh, with your university degree is, um, at least it, it's perceived to be quite high. And, and so that's I think right. the challenge that Minerva has is, is, and other innovators, is getting people to jump who might otherwise go to a first-rate brick-and-mortar university and, um, and maybe – you know, maybe not get the return from it that they could get at a place like, like this one. 
I wish Harvard cared more about being bigger, actually. Uh, it seems to me so many universities, they're willing to grow if they can grow in ways where they maintain some kinds of control. So there's like new facilities, there's new external programs, there's new, uh, say, athletics, new initiatives that require more administrators. But just for the school to be bigger, you know, I'm used to George Mason, which has gone from a few thousand students to 34,000 and improved quality pretty much the whole way through. Uh, not that many schools are doing that. I'm spoiled in a way. I know it's possible. Yeah, well, it's hard. It's hard to steer those cats um, on the faculty. We we know that. Uh, let's let's turn to some of the questions. Let's go back to your uh, book, although it's been fun talking about something only related tangentially to it. But let's talk about what you would say is the low front, low hanging fruit for improving the rate of economic growth. You know, I find it deeply distressing that our current economic policy debate is over whether we should. Um, renegotiate NAFTA um, is sort of the central piece of what we're debating. It, it, I guess another piece would be the our tax policy, which is none of which is going well. Uh, there could be political reasons for that, obviously, but some of it has to, has to, I think, has to do with our ideological differences in the country. Uh, what would you recommend that we, that we do to boost the economic growth rate? Uh, the United States. I yeah. think we should commit truly to free trade, which we are not doing now. I think our government actually should spend more supporting scientific research. You and I may disagree on that. I think we should radically deregulate building. I feel in almost all areas of the economy, we should deregulate economic activity. I would say the environment and finance are more complicated stories there. Those are partial exceptions. Uh, have systematic tax reform and treat capital income better. Uh, those would just be a few things offhand that I would recommend. What's complicated about finance? We have this thing called I, deposit. I, I, I disagree with you on the on the science part, but if I got your whole platform, I'd be thrilled. I'd be happy yes. to take a little too much science research that might be spent not so well to uh, get the rest of it. But So I'm sorry I interrupted you. How would you – What's the issue with finance? We have this thing called deposit insurance, which even if you abolished on paper, the actual guarantee, in my opinion, will not go away as long as we have Congress in the modern world. So that means there's some kind of backstop. So there's always the chance financial institutions take depositors' money or creditors' money and, in essence, bring it to the casino to take too much risk in nonproductive ways. And I do think the government has to do something to control that. Uh, my favorite direction is to have higher capital requirements. So, in essence, the banks are first playing with their own money. Uh, but even capital requirements, they're not a simple thing to see through and enforce. And I think this will require a fair amount of financial regulation. And if we don't do that, we'll end up with periodic crises that will lead to even more financial regulation and possibly nationalization. So I think that's a very tricky issue. Uh, but I don't think just you know hands-off laissez-faire makes sense there. What about environmental issues? You just mentioned them, but you also spend a decent amount of time in the book talking about them. How do they interact with the issues of growth that you're talking about? A lot of people would argue uh, that growth is bad for the environment. Economists typically answer, yeah, but countries that grow at higher rates and get wealthier tend to take care of the environment. Um, What's your take? Most aspects of the environment improve with economic growth. Clean water is an example. Clean air is an example. There's something known as the Kuznets curve, that as societies become wealthier, they do a better job cleaning up. Uh, that's true, but keep in mind, in part, we have the Kuznets curve because some government regulation is used. It's by no means entirely due to regulation, but partly it is. But I think on this one issue of carbon, we see a lot of countries getting wealthier and not really doing much, if anything, to clean up their carbon emissions uh, and in that instance, I would consider something like a carbon tax, and if need be, cut taxes on other capital income to make up for the difference. So you wouldn't say we should grow as fast as we can so we can adapt to the climate change that might be coming? Well, I think a carbon tax is the way to grow as fast as we can. Look at it that way. We've got to tax something, right? 
So you can either tax productive labor or you can tax something that with some probability emits a negative externality. In almost any model, taxing the negative externality will give you higher growth. At one point you ask about what we can do to make our civilization more stable. What are you thinking about there? What do you mean by making our civilization more stable and what kind of um, actions do you think would be relevant? Since World War II, we've lived in this funny upswing where so many countries have simply had higher and higher standards of living and more democracy and, in general, a higher degree of public order. And we started to treat that as historically normal. I don't know whether or not it's historically normal, but if you go back and you read classic history or study antiquity or, for that matter, you know, read the Hebrew Bible, I think you get a very different perspective on what history normally looks like. So I think there are key issues such as cybersecurity, nuclear terrorism, foreign policy. Uh, hardly do we ignore those things, but I don't think they're sufficiently a civilizational priority. There are forms of existential risk that we could do more to protect ourselves against, but I think we're too complacent to actually do it. And furthermore, so much of the budget is spent on other things, it comes across to people as a difficult-to-swallow tax hike. I would much rather we spend more money limiting risk at the civilizational level than what we're doing now. A lot of people are worried about inequality. Uh, we've alluded, we touched on this earlier, but I want to come back to it now. Um, and a lot of people would argue it's the central problem of our age. It is – it does put our our society at, at risk of instability because there's a pervasive sense of unfairness uh, is the claim. What are your um, thoughts on how we might – whether we should deal with that and, and whether uh, – how it might interact with the, with the growth the growth rate that you're more – that you're more focused on? Well, as we've discussed, there's lots we could do that would increase opportunity for people who now are less skilled or have lower incomes – uh, but I'm not persuaded by the view that inequality is somehow the root cause of political instability. Uh, if I look at a place such as Poland, which right now is flirting with semi-fascistic ideas or non-democratic ideas in a dangerous way, they've had a wonderful economic performance for the most part. A lot of productive manufacturing jobs have come into Poland, actually, from Western Europe. Uh, it's a far, far nicer and better place than it had been under Soviet domination, and yet they're flirting with their liberal ideas. Now, I don't pretend to know why that's the case, but whenever I hear a kind of simple equation of, here's this domestic tendency I don't like about American politics, so I'm going to say it's the root cause behind politicians I don't like, social movements I don't like, street crime, violence, collapse of public order, when you actually look at the literature, the literature seems to suggest inequality gives rise to some disillusionment and disengagement. Uh, those are bad things, but if anything causes instability, you know, it can be rising expectations in some cases. So I don't think we really understand the political consequences of inequality, but I hear a lot of claims batted around that probably aren't true. Let's turn to a philosophical question, which is utilitarianism. You write quite a bit about in the book. I think you define yourself as a two-thirds utilitarian. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, that was a little tongue-in-cheek, but I think if you're looking at a public policy, the first question you should ask should be the utilitarian question, will this make most people better off? It's not the end point. You also need to ask about justice, and you should consider distribution. I think you should consider, say, how human beings are treating animals. You might want to consider other broader considerations. Uh, but that's the starting point. And if your policy fails the utilitarian test, I'm not saying it can never be good, but it has really a pretty high bar to, to clear. So when I said two-thirds, that's what I meant. So I like that too. I mean my view is it's sort of the starting point. It's not the end point. I think for a lot of people it is the end point. But you write up quite a bit. And I, I find it intriguing some of the more harsher demands that utilitarianism might place on us. And it's, they're not so easy to, um, to answer. Uh, so talk about what some of those are about, say, um, having an ice cream cone uh, when people are starving or, 
working selfishly at your job when you could relocate and um, say as a doctor and help poor people outside the United States. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? Talk about some of what those issues are and then give us your, your take on them. Well, this is the Peter Singer conundrum. How can you enjoy that act of personal consumption, that chocolate ice cream cone, when dot, 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 people are starving? You even hear this from your parents when you're a kid. How can you leave food on your plate when there's you know, hungry children in Africa, whatever the, the tale used to be? Um, that's a morally interesting question, but I don't think it's the most relevant question. I think the most relevant question is, what can you do so the global economy grows at a higher rate? And that's going to help the poor, including in other countries, more than anything else because of technology transfer, remittances, immigration, multinationals hiring people at higher wages and so on. And if you ask the question, well, you know, what can I do for the, the poor in my own country or other countries? The answers will be to work really hard, try to innovate, you know, save a lot, contribute to highly productive organizations uh, I do think we should feel a greater compulsion to do those things than we do now. So I'm willing to bite that bullet. But that, to me, is the moral dilemma, you know, not the ice cream cone. If the ice cream cone is what motivates people to produce value because they love ice cream, I say full steam ahead with the ice cream cone. I'm worried that we're not innovating enough. Yeah, for me, the argument is is really a failure to understand. I think the other side, the people would say, I mean, the example I remember from um, – I think it's from Will McCaskill, or he might have been taking it from Singer, is how can you throw a birthday party for your kid? It's just the most selfish thing in the world because that, that amount of money could have an enormous impact on the well-being of a person elsewhere and in a poorer society. And I guess the problem I have with that is I don't think we have a very good understanding of how to make people's lives better who aren't living in our society. And all these conundrums, all of these puzzles and 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 clever um, hypotheticals, they ignore that. They always assume, oh, you could take this money and transform this person's life as if there's just a box you could put the money in. We don't have that box. You know, people would say to me, I love when people would say to me, um, do you think we should give money to help education in, in poor countries? And I'd say no. And they'd say, you're, you're a selfish person. I said, we can't even figure out how to, make, to use money in the United States to make people's lives better in education. Why would I be so presumptuous to think I could do it some, in a different society where the governance structures, the political institutions are designed often to steal that money? I just don't see any evidence that, that there's such a mechanism. And to then I'm, – I'm willing to – I'm willing the bullet I'd bite is let's look and try to find mechanisms that, that will actually work. But the idea that somehow that selfish of me to want to keep my money when I can't uh, help people's lives, I don't understand it. I'm more optimistic about philanthropy perhaps than you are, but I would just take the stance that the much richer society will generate more philanthropy. You know, a lot of it voluntary. Look at what Bill Gates is doing in Africa. I don't know that that's all working. I'm, I'm not well informed about it, but he's certainly trying and we know immigration works. We know having large multinationals who set up plants in other countries and hire people at higher wages. We know that works. We do know some things. I think we know like some number of public health programs work if you vaccinate kids or if we can get rid of malaria or you know polio in some places, smallpox and others, that works. So we know some things that work and we've done a fair amount in those directions. So to me, it would be strange to think we'll never find more things that work but I think our path there is not kind of moralizing to people and telling them to close up the birthday party or put down the ice cream cone. But my goodness, just get everyone, you know, working more, harder, smarter and cultivating uh, a, a culture of philanthropy, which America largely has to its benefit. Yeah, don't misunderstand me. I'm a big fan of philanthropy and I, I, I try to give away 10 percent of my after tax income every year uh, for religious reasons. And I think there are ways to do that that are smarter than others, and I think it's important as a human being and as a way to make the world a better place. I think the challenge is getting those to scale and doing it in an organized way. Sure. Um, I don't know. So I think the, the tougher criticism of my view would be how can you only give 10%? Uh, and, you, and you make that point in your, in your book. You know, how, given my relative uh, material prosperity, I should be giving away maybe 40. And I think that's it's an interesting argument. I, I think I have to take that. I think a thoughtful person needs to take that seriously who's living, you know, an incredibly um, 
rich life, not just in material well-being, but in all the things that that material well-being brings in terms of security and and comfort. So I, I, I think it's a legitimate question, and I do think that the that the way to do that is through through private philanthropy rather than through the, through government aid, which is has a really bad track record. <laughs> Um, I know so. a person. He works in the financial sector in New York. He makes a lot of money, and he lives on almost nothing. He gives it all away. And I find that admirable. I think there should be more of it. But I wonder, given the human beings are what they are, how sustainable it would be to have too much more of it. I don't know. But I think the correct answer is to say, yes, we should have more of this. Let's try a bit more see how it goes. I think that's right. But as you point out and I, and I in the book, and I think it's – it's related to your point just now about human human nature and the human condition. If you um, if you're not careful, you become a slave. Uh, so the argument would be: well, it's not forty percent; you should be giving seventy five or eighty percent away because your standard of living is so much higher than than other people's. We don't have to go to poor countries outside the United States; we can stick with the United States, actually. Sure. So. People in West Virginia, Kentucky, Mississippi, you name it, in your own state. You don't have to even leave your state, just different parts. Um, it's immoral for you to live as comfortably as you do because there are people who live very badly nearby. And I do think it's not so straightforward to say, okay, how can I help make their lives better? Um, but suppose I do find that way. It's a weird thing to become a, uh, a servant of their well-being um, some might say it's the highest human experience you could have. You know, your friend in New York, maybe he's very happy. I don't know. Is mm-hmm. he or is she? I don't know. <laughs> uh, he seems happy. Always hard to know, but I'm not sure everyone could be happy that way. Yeah, I, I think it, that's a challenge. Well, I mean, the more important uh, thing to think about, of course, is the time factor. So you're going to go to school, get a medical degree, work for eight years so that you can give away an enormous amount of money and make lots of people's lives uh, more pleasant. I don't know if that's an, an, an appealing uh, marketing ploy. Hmm. Uh, at one point, you talk about the arrow impossibility theorem. Uh, and I think right now we're in a um, very interesting time in American politics, and partly as a result of the nature of the partisan divide we're, we're in right now. I think I'm older than you. I remember when this divide was like this before. It's This is nothing new. I remember when Richard Nixon was in office, he was despised beyond words uh, by his political opponents. So it's not quite as new as it, as it might feel. But there is something alarming about the state of things. And part of it, I think, Part of it's the result of um, having an electoral college victors who didn't carry the popular vote. And that's very misleading because once the incentives, the rules are there, you should follow the rules. You're going to naturally try to win the electoral college vote. Doesn't mean you would have you would have lost the popular vote if that had been the only criterion. But there is a certain unease, I think, about the state of uh, the American political system. Does your work? And I think of Arrow. I think of public choice generally and the – you talked about the aggregation problem, the challenge of the fact that we want different things. There's no such thing as the will of the people. You know, almost There's almost never such a thing even though it might get invoked. What is your philosophy in this book? What does it have to say about these issues? Well, one of the core arguments of the book is the way to resolve aggregation problems like the Arrow and possibility theorem is to move away from the static framework – and think dynamically and in terms of economic growth. And then at the social level, the book is very much an encouragement to people to think big and to believe in very significant, you could almost call them transcendent values, uh, and that ethical thought needs to have what, what you almost might call a religious component, though I mean the word religious in the broad sense and not necessarily about a particular god, and that that's part of the path to getting to growth maximization is changing how we think about our own social reality. And today's America, I see us in so many ways as moving in the opposite direction, being more petty, being more polarized, being more at each other's throats, being actually less religious in the good sense, being more complacent and more risk averse. 
So uh, our own values matter. They're one of the things that matter the most for boosting the rate of economic growth. Martha Nussbaum on recently, and she talked about she and I both talked about transcendence. We had different understandings of it. So this is um, I don't think that word has been uttered until now, uh, until Martha Nussbaum on this program, and now it, here it is again. Uh, and you've also now invoked religion uh, with a wink and a asterisk and a I don't know what else. So what do you what do you mean by transcendent? values say and what do you mean by religion to quote the good kind or not any particular god what does that mean to you well i think people as biological beings have a lot of programming to think about the immediate and short term there's plenty of evidence for that but to get to growth maximization we need this longer term perspective now how is it we're going to do that well partly we could kind of whip ourselves into submission out of our high time preference rate but that very often doesn't work you get people to think about the deeper future, you know, love of descendants, care about higher values in some regard, looking beyond themselves, thinking about broader values, and those you might call religious in some way. And I think that's, the, you know, the whole answer to the problem, actually, whether you identify with a particular formal religion today or not. And personally, actually, I don't, as you know. Well, so, I don't know, Tyler. You might have come, you know, come over to my side or someone else's in the last few years. We don't, we don't talk that often. Well, you know, someone would have told you. It's like the segregating <laughs> yeah, of information in Silicon Valley. Yeah, Even if you true. only talked to 10 people, one of those 10 would have told you, correct? Tyler's become a Mormon. You're right. I would have heard. But you're not. So I don't want, to, don't, I don't want anybody to quote me out of context. Um, you're not a Mormon. You're not, you're not a, a institutionally religious person. But religion is very good for economic growth, in my opinion, and I think there's good evidence for that. And by I mean monotheistic religion as well. So we have highly secular societies, very often with falling birth rates. America is not the worst offender in that regard, but it's a potential problem for us. That shrinks economies, it increases the debt burden, it lowers innovation. And if you ask, you know, what predicts a willingness, say, to have children and contribute to the more distant future, uh, religion is one of the very best predictors there. Why would you call this book Stubborn Attachments? The idea that we as human beings have stubborn attachments to other people and to ideas and to schemes and to our own world and then trying to create a framework that can make sense of those and, and tell people it's rational and they ought to double down on their best stubborn attachments and that that's what makes life meaningful and creates this cornucopia in which kind of moral philosophy and ethics can actually make sense and give us some answers. You say at one point, encouraging to the, the reader to take a particular perspective, you say, I also hope that you'll respond to your book. You say, I also hope that you'll respond by taking a stronger stand on behalf of the ideals of freedom and prosperity, I hope that you will join more firmly in the cause of making our civilization stronger, more durable, and also making our civilization a more wondrous place. I am suggesting that we need a radical re reawakening, and this reawakening, it turns out, will prove a new and compelling way of reaffirming our own power as individuals. I'm very, close quote. I'm very sympathetic to that encouragement. Uh, obviously, it's some some ways that's what I spend my professional life trying to achieve. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but one of the things I find fascinating and 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 depressing, to be honest, is that the ideal of freedom is really falling away as anything that has any appeal to the average person. The, the idea of a rule that we should stand for freedom or liberty uh, is constantly being eroded by this idea that, oh, well, in this case, we should try to do better. And I think freedom for freedom's sake is um, – which I think used to be really a hallmark of the American – many Americans, is, uh, is dying. Do you agree or disagree? It's dwindling. I don't know if I'd say it's dying. I, I agree with your assessment of the direction. One other thing I'd just like to mention about the book is how much time I spend discussing agnosticism and that there needs to be room for a radical agnosticism in any approach to politics or economics – but at the same time, in the big picture, you can still believe in things strongly. So you can be truly unsure that you know what the best policy is, but you have some assessment. And when you believe in this power of, of compounding sustainable economic growth, the force of that far out 
is enough that you can be agnostic about a lot of your concrete judgments, but still believe very passionately in, in, in doing a lot now to reach these ends. And balancing the skeptical perspective of human Hayek with rationalism is another underlying set of themes running throughout the book. My guest today has been Tyler Cowan. The book is Stubborn Attachments. It's available online at medium.com and uh, elsewhere, perhaps, Tyler, you can tell us. Uh, and thank you for being part of EconTalk. Always a pleasure, Russ. Look forward to the next time. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.